0: You're listening to Sciencing the Shit out of MS, part of the Classroom Psychology Network. And now, here's your host, Dr. Cora Sargent. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Sciencing the Shit out of MS. I'm your host, Cora. Thank you so very much for joining me. I hope you're doing okay. It is wonderful to see you, uh, you know it's a tough old road having multiple sclerosis, but it makes it a little bit easier if we are in it together. We can look around and we can genuinely say you are not alone and we have a bunch of things as we you know the function of what we do here is to look to the seeds that we can plant in the garden of our mental health so that we can watch them grow they take time i got to say i've been benefiting a great deal from these seeds i genuinely think i'm seeing them grow things like acceptance like activation towards meaning and social relationships doing the things that make us scared maybe because they make us scared if they bring us closer to other people and towards meaning in our lives biasing our cognition towards the moment, being grateful and kind, problem solving and planning and protecting our agency most recently. I think that has become quite important to me recently as you know my agency becomes a little bit stripped of me or at least it threatens to do so as the disability worsens and I had to recruit all of these this week y'all. I had to you know I, I went to go and get a wheelchair for the first time. I don't need it to get around very much. I I get around my half flat without any mobility aids, and I think I can walk about seven hundred meters without mobility aids, which is pretty cool. But things seem to deteriorate pretty quickly after seven hundred meters. It's about twelve minutes, and when I get to those twelve minutes, I I was I was out with friends uh, at this. Uh, at a in london and uh, we were out for the evening and we walked home and i was like how far is it home and we gaged it. it was about 20 minutes somewhere between 15 and 20 and i was like okay I, I think that's at the upper cap of what i can manage but let's give it a go you know i had my sword case on my back I had my you know my crutches in one uh slot and i had my cane in the other and we went at about 700 meters in 12 minutes or so i was measuring it I gradually started to get more and more disabled. I was struggling to walk and I started to get unsteady to the point it was slightly risky. So I switched into the cane that bought me an extra couple of minutes. I reckon an extra couple of hundred meters, maybe at most. And then I was like, okay, time to switch up to the crutches. And then I did the crutches the rest of the way. And I could go for about 20 minutes with crutches. I reckon I could have gone further if needed, but gradually it was getting harder and harder to lift my legs. And it feels risky, right? If I get jostled or nudged or I miss a step or something, I'm going over. There's no doubt in my mind. So I took the plunge. Kaz and I decided to go out together. You know, uh, it was for our anniversary of all things. For our anniversary, we went to Brighton. Um, Brighton, Bristol. Nope, not Brighton, nor Bristol. Portsmouth. Nope, Bournemouth. I knew it started with B. (laughs) Welcome to word fighting difficulties with MS. Um, Yeah, Bournemouth. We popped over to Bournemouth and uh, we went out for lunch. It was actually really lovely. Got a really nice... I got a fish finger sandwich, y'all. It was wonderful. Um, We had a good time. We had good fun. And we went to a showroom. I've never been to one of these for uh, mobility aids. And it is very much like a car showroom. Like you're walking around and inside these like mobility scooters and wheelchairs are sort of laid out like... They're sort of, they sit in their own little lit space. So you can walk right around them, take a look at them from all sides. One assumes kick the tires. And I, I you know, I I took my first ever uh, roll around in a wheelchair, manual wheelchair. I've never, ever, ever been in one before. And I was in one for the first time. And it was a big moment. It felt like a big moment as I was wheeling my ass around and realizing that I'm gonna need to get buffer than I am right now. Uh, I'm gonna have to buff up, y'all, you know, in order to try and push this thing around with any competence. And um, it's arriving in 10, 15 days. It's this little blue number. Uh, it's not got uh, suspension, but apparently the suspension is kind of a joke on even the suspendy ones. Uh, and you know, is very comfortable. It, is lightweight, easy to fold and move around. The wheels clip on and off with a single button press. It's, I don't know, uh, it doesn't come with air conditioning, but everything else is pretty good. Spinning rims, I was asking about, but no, apparently that's not a thing. So you know, I, I, you know, it was a weird experience. Um, I've never been in that experience before. I've never really, I don't know what to to interpret it like. You know, like I have no no benchmark for was this a good or bad experience. It was fine. The dude who showed us around and talked us through the wheelchairs uses one himself. He has quite significant back trouble and he uses one to get around every now and again. And so he was talking from a position of understanding. And as a consequence, every question he asked, every sort of piece of advice he gave while he did try to upsell us a couple of times, understandably, uh, it's his job. But, you know, with the deepest of sensitivity and we came away purchasing one. And I realized that I'm in a deeply privileged position, right? I don't have any dependents uh, and I can still work and CAS works full time. And between us, you know, we're in pretty good jobs. Like, you know, I'm a research director at a university, you know, and I am in a privileged position to be able to afford a wheelchair like this and go around a showroom like that. Um, you know, and I acknowledge that deeply unearned privilege here and now, um, But I still deeply appreciate it. You know, I deeply appreciate the opportunity to be able to wheel one of these things around. It's going to arrive in a week or two and then I'm going to get buff, you know. I'm going to wheel my ass up and down these hills around and I'm going to get as strong as I need to be to be able to mobilize myself around the place. Um, But yeah, I had to deploy all of my acceptance, you know, my sort of implicit uh, ableism as I was like, I don't need a wheelchair. Um, And I did. I just did. I do. Um, and hopefully it's going to be dope. Hopefully it's going to be cool as I wheel my ass around. I can you know, go on walks. I can visit my brother again, which I haven't been able to do for a while because I can't walk to his place anymore. Uh, but I hopefully will be able to do that again because I can get into the wheelchair and wheel my ass around. Um, and who knows? Maybe it will be awesome. Maybe it will be awesome. This week, uh, you know, I want to talk about qualitative research a little bit. You know, Kaz has been so good, you know, recently, has been very kind, has been very supportive, as she always is. When we went for a a glance around the wheelchair place, you know, she spotted out the place we were going to go in Bournemouth. You know, she located it. She checked that the wheelchair we were looking at was going to be in stock and test drivable. She did all this stuff like that she does in the background Um, and and we went. And we bought a wheelchair. I, of course, you know, paid for my own wheelchair. But, but she had done so much work in the background. I sort of want to appreciate that, and I'm going to look to the qualitative research to see if we can't, you know, see if we can't understand how awesome she is, and you know, the role of the caregiver. And see what your positive psychology can teach us about how to support caregivers in this difficult circumstance. I don't particularly like thinking of her as my caregiver. She's my partner. But damn it, she also provides a lot for me, Uh, you know, does a lot around the house um, and supports me a great deal in all kinds of ways. So, yeah, let's face it. She is something of a, a caregiver, too. So let's take a look at the research. Also, you know, qualitative research, for those who don't know, has been undergoing something of a revolution recently. Um, About 15, 16, 17 years ago, Brown and Clark came out with this seminal paper, uh, 2006, this paper about uh, thematic analysis. And it was a sort of a mode of analyzing qualitative data, like interviews, focus groups, and a bunch of other things, you know, that kind of rich, deep data about somebody's lived experience that isn't like questionnaires. It's it's really about asking them about that experience. And they came out with this method, which sort of made it more accessible. And lots and lots of new researchers could get into qualitative research because they made it an accessible methodology, And so loads of people did, and qualitative research exploded a bit. And then Brown and Clark were like, wow, you know, they, I think they experienced basically the scientific equivalent of something going viral, right? Like this, this analysis, this modality started to get this huge blossoming interest from the wider uh, society and from, from the wider research community. And Brown and Clark sort of started to see it become quite generic and quite, like a little bit misinformed. So Brown and Clark kind of evolved their methodology to be focused on two, I suppose there's a few different methods that thematic analysis has become. But the one that we're going to focus on is the reflexive thematic analysis. Now, reflexive TA fundamentally says, You as researcher come with your own perspective. You come with your own experience. You come with your own understanding of the community that you're working with. Ideally, you're a member of the community you're working with. And so your interpretation is valid and valuable. And reflexive thematic analysis says, we want to make your influence upon the data transparent, but we want your influence on the data to be as rich and full as it can possibly be and with this new thematic analysis approach we're seeing a new revolution in thematic methods in in qualitative methods where people are engaging in much richer much deeper interpretation and are creating really beautiful stories that genuinely represent the uh, experiences of of participants and that's where we start our processes with reflexive thematic analysis about caregiver experiences. So we're going to focus on the study by McKenna, facalad Cardwell and Pelluti uh, called A Continuum of Languishing to Flourishing, Exploring Experiences of Psychological Resilience in Multiple Sclerosis Family Caregivers from the International Journal of Qualitative Studies on Health and Wellbeing last year. This is a really cool study. I think we're going to focus wholly on this study. And the reason is because we can go in the podcast here, we can go deep into the words of participants in the same way that they could in the conduction of the research. So we can get into the actual real life experiences of people who are caring for somebody with MS. So they interviewed 24 people who are caring for somebody with multiple sclerosis and um, at various stages of the disease and with various levels of disability and they coded the data they went into a kind of deep analysis of the data and then they came up with a bunch of really interesting themes so our aim here is to take the words of participants in these themes and see if they can teach us something about what the experience is like and maybe give us a sense of how we can support or better support our carers and um, I really want to make sure that Kaz is well looked after, and I kind of need to understand that experience in a fairly deep way to be able to know how I can best support her, even though I'm disabled. So let's take a look. So the first theme they came up with is about resilience, how people experience resilience under these difficult circumstances. This is Tara. Resilience is about bouncing back, I think, right? Allowing yourself to have those very real emotions, giving yourself that space to feel those very real reactions to things, and then saying, okay, I can't change that. Let's move on. Let's find a plan. I think a lot of people think that resilience is about not being affected by things, but I don't find that accurate. You know, I have to feel everything first and process it, and then I can move forward with plans in mind every time we talk about a uh, a name here like tara daryl uh they're all pseudonyms the researchers uh, protected the anonymity of participants so that's interesting in and of itself right uh, right from the beginning we talk about acceptance activation right tara saying resilience isn't about trying to avoid being affected by things in fact quite the opposite it's about feeling everything first and processing it and then you can move forward And, you know, Tara also talks about planning. And again, we've talked about that being valuable here. I suppose what we might find here, of course, is that the things that we have talked about that, you know, positive psychology indicate are good seeds to plant in the garden of our mental health may also be the seeds that our caregivers can plant in their own garden. So maybe that might be where we wind up here. Let's keep looking. From Daryl. I think people vacillate between having to go through a difficult physical problem and the emotional need to bear down and work through it and prepare for it again in the next hour or on the next day or the next spring. So participants talked about resilience being fluid, about it being being flexible in response to change and involving long-term grit and continuity. You accept what's happening. You know, you can't change it. You feel the awful feelings that come with it, and then you start to make plans. So the second theme is very connected to that, and it's about grief. The sort of negative feelings that come with accumulating disability when you're caring for somebody you can see um, has, you know, an accumulation of new disabilities and how that connects to resilience. It's sort of really interesting. The participants, you know, these people who are caring for somebody with MS talk about, you know, grieving not for a day or week or month. This is uh, Eli. They say the biggest challenge of the whole experience is that you're not grieving for a day or week or month. It's for the whole thing, because there's always that change. And you're also grieving the loss to come. From Laura, MS is a loss of one thing after another, after another, after another. You know, the loss of being able to walk, you know, the loss of being able to have a partner that can assist with household chores, that can assist with childcare, that can support you. God, it's a little bit wounding, but we got to accept, you know, this is the truth, right? This is the truth of it. Yeah, for sure. Um, I can see the challenge that caregivers have to experience when they're doing more as I'm able to do less. Grace, I still every once in a while have a bad day. And I'll just be down in the dumps because it's not fair. Just things like that. We can't go on a hike in the woods or we can't buy that house within a matter of minutes. It's taken us months and months to do everything. I still get upset by stuff like that. Who buys a house within minutes, Grace? <laughs> I don't know if that's a reasonable expectation. Uh, but I appreciate very much the feeling of loss that comes with having to do things very differently and not being able to go for a hike in the woods. i got to say, though, you know, those are very real feelings. Um, And once the grief of that experience uh, can be accepted and you you sort of work through it, there are kind of off-road wheelchairs and stuff. I feel like, you know, these are things that I can do to kind of make things better for Kaz. She needs to experience the loss of this, you know, this disease. Of course, that's part of acceptance. But maybe I can also plan to make sure that I mitigate those losses where possible. That's kind of interesting, but not to kind of avoid her feeling the grief of it, but to help her to plan and to plan with her as she experiences that grief and moves past it. You know, if you can move past it, given that there's constantly new grief coming, but but you can, I think, survive it together and move forward. The third uh, theme is about helplessness and the obstacles of empowerment, which is kind of interesting because we've talked a lot about agency being quite important. And it looks like actually agency might be taken from our caregivers in the same way as it's taken from us implicitly by the environments we find ourselves in. What seems to help from this research, the caregivers uh, feel a greater sense of agency is better support from professional services. You know, uh, it seems like people are saying we're looking for better treatments, we're looking for a cure ultimately, but we're also looking for things like physiotherapy, like occupational therapy. And it's hard to find those resources. And that's kind of interesting to me. I have found that the MS nursing team has been absolutely outstanding. But the moment we try to reach out to the wider hospital support, like physiotherapy, occupational therapy, um. Uh, neurophysiology, uh, urology, it's actually become suddenly very difficult to get access to support. And I can imagine that those circumstances make life a lot e- more difficult for people who are in a caring role, because, you know, if I could have access to urology that's thats quick and that I could find solutions to bladder difficulties, then that would be great. But if I don't, then I'm getting in the bathroom a bunch and it limits what Kaz and I can do because I need a bathroom nearby and I have to plan more carefully. And she has to plan more carefully, of course, because that's what she does. That's who she is. She's a planner. You know, she controls things and manages and she's wonderful. Um, But of course, like the less uh, good professional services that are available to us immediately, the more she has to take that burden on. That's really interesting. I don't think I'd really considered the relationship between those two things So not only do I have a responsibility to make sure that the services and support is available to me, but I have to advocate for myself and make sure that I get that, get those services and support so that I can alleviate the pressure that otherwise is placed on both me, but also Kaz. Interesting. The next aspect of this sub-theme is about the opportunities for self-care that get impeded by caring responsibilities. So really interesting. Sophia reflected on this. She says, I completely lost track of my own personal life and bubble in that time of diagnosis because the focus was totally on my husband. I felt like I needed to try to keep everything in check so that I could be there for him and not really acknowledge the impact that things had on me. Uh, Laura says... We are so immersed in providing care for someone else. So we have to recognize that we're equally as needing and as valuable, as worthy of care. And we can't get it from that partner, right? We can't get that care from them always. They're not able to give it to us. So we have to find it somewhere. That's interesting in and of itself. You know, trying to kind of make sure that that our partners, that our carers do have the opportunity to get the care that they need from sources like that are us ideally like i i can still provide some care like i'm not completely incapable but i do understand why you know we need to make sure that the focus isn't always just on us right we need to focus on i need to focus on my care i need to focus on my partner and make sure that she you know feels like you know she's being looked after too in the ways that i can The next part is about mutuality and communication so apart from you know communication with your partner which it seems is obviously really important here serena talks about make sure that there's the open communication with the person you're caring for that you can understand what the symptoms are and how they're impacting them so that they can so that you can work together to come up with a plan to help and leroy as best i can i try to see things from my wife's perspective and try to approach it with empathy I don't always succeed at that, but at least I tried to imagine what it's like for her and see if there are ways that I could intercede or offer support or something. But it's also about wider communication, right? It's also about communicating with and being connected to wider community. And this is from uh, Laura. I resisted asking for help for a really long time, and I think that's part of why why I got into a crisis. I've had good support systems, but I think probably it was to my detriment that I didn't reach out to some community groups earlier, because it really did help. That's been another resource for me. And Richard? Staying involved helps you from getting depressed and controlling depression. The social interaction, the groups that, you know, I organized the chess club and ran some chess tournament and so on. That was activity in the community and so on. And that gave me a bit of a profile in the community and, you know, some social status, which I think helped. That sort of thing was very helpful. Um, Really interesting. So, so, uh, like, communication between the caregiver and the person they are caring for, often their partner. And this kind of wider community connection to ensure that everybody has the sort of social support that they need to manage what is a very challenging circumstance. Now, the last theme in here is, you know, when everything's in place, when communication is good, when people feel supported in themselves, not only, you know, their carers, but not only the person they're caring for, but they themselves feel supported when they're connected to the wider community, when they have social networks and support, when, you know, when they have a good relationship with their partner and open communication to get needs met and continue to plan, actually the outcome, you know, the sort of the, the direction of travel here is fairly favorable. It's quite optimistic. This last sub theme is about adaptation, beginning with a learned mindset. And basically saying that, you know, when people uh, are able to draw on interpersonal resources and intrapersonal resources, they can develop a mindset that's conducive to adapting to the changing conditions. They learn to be able to adapt. They adapt and they move forward, accepting the awfulness of of how things are and surviving that awfulness, and then you know feeling resilient in being adaptive and flexible and managing to continue to move forward. From Tracy, there's so much you can learn you can't control, so don't worry about it. There's nothing I can do until it happens, so we'll just focus on what we can deal with. William, accept the limitations of the person you're caring for. Accept that it will happen. Don't take it out on the partner. You know the famous quote of accept the things you can't change and change the things you can. And so if there's an action you can do, then that's fine. If there's nothing you can do, then... You just have to accept the fact that that's the way it is and move on and find other things to do. from Jolene, learning what my husband was capable of and you know what his limits were, and when during the day, I find those are pretty consistent with his MS. He's more tired in the morning, so he won't have anything he won't do anything before 10, and then at seven he's done. So I'm just figuring out how he is. We've learned to manage a lot of stuff. Leroy. Well, so some ways I'll adapt for my wife. You know, obviously when she's experiencing episode of flare-ups, they will usually limit her physical stamina to do things or her sometimes her physical strength. So say chores around the house, those are, let's say, more laborious, like vacuuming, for example. We've adapted by sort of trading off those things that are harder for her to do. Really interesting to me, you know, how, how people are resilient in these circumstances by adapting to the awfulness of the disease and the changing uh, levels and kinds of disability. And it's really interesting. And finally, the, really, the thing that sort of seems to really help here is the ability to read the care recipient and prevent problematic situations before they arise. So it's kind of a, a skill of situational anticipation at the height of adaptation, right? So it's not just about kind of res- accepting and responding to limitations, but about anticipating challenging situations and putting things in place that will, you know, together, that will prevent it from impeding your enjoyment of the circumstance, like your enjoyment of what you're trying to do. So there are two quotes here that are really interesting. One from Sophia, about 10 days before our wedding, my husband had a flare. And so it was just, okay, so these are the facts. This is what's happening. And we just tried to come up with a contingency plans of like, if his legs get too weak, we rent a wheelchair if we have to, or we can get a walker for him and we add ice packs. That's really cool. You know, Getting having a flare 10 days before your wedding sounds awful, but the response together, you know, acknowledging how difficult it is, but sort of proactively planning for situational, you know, situational anticipation, anticipating challenges in a particular situation, and then putting things in place in advance of that situation so that you can both enjoy whatever it is you're trying to do together. Super cool. And then Nora, we look back towards my partner's lifestyle and experiences, diet, emotional, physical, mental status, anything that could have been a contributing factor. And we wanted to find some sort of pattern in terms of is it stress, is it diet, is it an environmental factor that kind of brings out these kind of relapses so that we know that we can work with our end of every with our everyday situation to prevent any of this stuff from happening. We changed diets, ASAP. We really looked at the broader picture of our lifestyle. So less than the actions that they were taking, it's also about like coming together and taking actions together. You know, restoring agency, being proactive, planning for the future, as well as, you know, together accepting the way that things are and, you know, feeling the awful feelings that come with that. I really like this piece of research. I think it does teach us some stuff. I mean, it teaches us a couple of things, right? The first is that, you know, multiple sclerosis comes with significant challenges that are ambiguous, and it comes with perpetual loss, powerlessness, and threatened self-care including for caregivers. I mean, in a sense, no more than for caregivers who give up their own self-care to care for us more. And so the first thing that I can see us needing to do is to make sure that those who are looking after us look after themselves and that we make sure to take the time to look after them because they need it too. Also to make sure that they feel a sense of agency. You know, their, their powerlessness <laughs> is as bad as ours almost that sense of loss, make sure they have the social support and make sure that they can make decisions and regain a sense of agency as we plan forward, you know, plan for the situations that are coming as we sort of engage in the things that make us happy and do some kind of anticipation. So Kaz and I are on our way to Brighton Pride this year. Um, I've not done Pride before. Kaz has done it before. And, you know, we knew that this was going to be difficult. So we contacted Pride in advance. We're like, hey, listen, I've got a few problems. Uh, how can you help us? And it turns out that they had loads of things that they could do. They have like seated areas for us to kind of sit in. They have a place which is a sort of uh, higher needs area where you can go in and be cool and and chill and sit down and meet other people with disabilities, one assumes who are LGBT+. plus. Listen, I cannot wait for that. You know, meeting other people in a similar situation to me. Uh, if I meet any other disabled trans people, uh, I'm going to lose my freaking mind. Um... One of my favorite podcasts is What the Trans, and one of the trans women on that podcast has multiple sclerosis, and it's just super awesome to hear her experiences. You know, she is a wheelchair user, uh, much like I myself am about to be, Uh, and so I just, you know, I find the community really important, I guess. This research says that it's not just important for me, but it's also really important for CAS, because we're not just going to be meeting LGBTQIA plus in people who have disabilities, but we're going to be meeting LGBTQIA plus caregivers. CAS can find a community here, people to connect with who are not in a different, like a wildly different circumstance. So if we widen our social circle, we connect with other people, then that will help us to kind of make sure that Kaz's needs are met as much as mine are. And then together, as this research highlights, we can engage in adaptive, you know, responses to this disability together. We can have an accepting mindset, a mindful mindset. As we sort of stay in the present, we Accept where things are and the problems that we're experiencing. Anticipate the things that will help and plan for the future as we together try to reach out toward the things that we think are important in life that that are connected to our values and that you know make us closer together and and that connect us to the wider community. Maybe pride is more important than I was giving it credit. Right? I thought, yeah, hey, it's going to be fun. But actually, it's an opportunity to widen our social network with people who are not wildly dissimilar from us. And that might be really important. Overall, right, this research highlights that if you have adequate resources at the societal level, if you had good support structures, if you have interventions in place to make sure that people are well looked after. If you have good, solid social support networks, and more than anything, if you have strong communication between you, you know, not trying to avoid the negative feelings that come with this disease, but facing them together, surviving them, and then problem solving together. Actually, there's an opportunity for people to be adaptive, to respond to this disease, and to be resilient together. And Keep on moving forward. Gosh, that reminds me of a couple of takes on MS. Um, Dan and Jen Digman, uh, some of my favorite podcasters. Uh, go listen to their podcast if you have any time. A couple takes on MS. Uh, absolutely amazing. They're both people with MS together. And, you know, this is it. You know, they talk about the value of, you know, sure, I'm walking and she's rolling, but together we're moving forward. Uh, absolutely beautiful. And here, you know, on Scienceing the Shit Out of MS... We come together as a community. We try to understand positive psychology and we try to move forward. And, you know, if we solve one problem, then we solve the next problem, then we solve the next. And if we solve enough problems, then together we can thrive with this disability. Thanks so much for joining me. This is Sciencing the Shit Out of MS. I look forward to seeing you, as always, in the next one.